um, you know, I think Tesla and, and Alphabet and Waymo, Larry Page for sure. I mean, some of his ideas about transportation and cities are, are downright insane. Um, you know, if he had his way, we would rebuild California uh, with a flying car in every garage. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy, founder of the Human Driving Association, author of The Driver, um, occasionally of Argo AI, although I do not represent them on this show. And I'll have to skip out for half the episode, but don't worry because my co-hosts are here and speaking on behalf of the incredible, um, incredible Kirsten Korosek, one of the few professionals in transportation journalism. Um, she's also the mobility editor for TechCrunch. Is that correct? Senior mobility reporter. Senior mobility reporter for TechCrunch. Uh, she's terrific. She's the she's the foundation of the show's wisdom and insight. Um, and 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 she's fantastic. Also joining us is <laughs> I don't I don't get an intro. I thought you're in. Oh, Ed Nadermeyer, uh, my friend, the author of Ludicrous, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors, as well as the communications director for PAVE, the Partners for uh, Automated Vehicle Education. And today's guest is someone um, who's uh, really credible, um, and that's uh, that's rare in this sector because when he says things, they're they're true, which is especially rare in the mobility and transportation sector. Anthony Townsend, uh, the author of Ghost Road, which is um, a, a, a book worth reading, um, and also the author of a book about smart cities, something like six or seven years ago, which is great because he foresaw back then that smart cities are the ones that that don't spend money on stupid technology solutions. Welcome, Anthony. So, so I'm really excited to be here because uh, David Zipper, who's a friend of the podcast and, and one of my favorite people, uh, said to me recently, have you read Ghost Road um, by Anthony Townsend? This is a great book. And I said, yes, I lied. <laughs> and, and then had a conversation with him as if I'd read it. And it became very apparent that I couldn't fake my way through it. So then I read it. I'm like, oh, this actually is a good book. And Townsend is my neighbor. Uh, in New Jersey, in Jersey City, and um, happens to also have a great Twitter uh, across politics and mobility in general. So welcome to the show, Anthony. Thank you. It's great to be uh, here. Really excited to have you on. Can I, so my my favorite thing about, one of my favorite things about Ghost Road is actually just how it's framed, like actually the, t the title. And um, like, I feel like so often AVs are discussed as a destination, rather than a journey. And I can know that's, it's so cliche, but like, it, it, it's so important, right? The important part of AVs is the, the, the process of, of adoption and, and understanding and, and using and, and, and optimizing like how, how we use these things uh, or this technology. Um, and that's going to be a really, really long process. And I feel like so much of people's understanding of AVs has been so distorted by the idea I feel like it's sort of like this consumer culture thing of like, it's going to be this product that's just going to be here any day now is sort of how people have been relating to it. And, and that's really prevented. So like, why, you know, why, why did you choose to frame it this way? What were sort of the, some of the things you were thinking about that, that made this the right way to, to, to write this book? Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think the book is an exercise in, in myth busting, uh, at least the, the first part of it. Um, we've been spoon fed, you know, not just for the last decade, um, you know, this fall marks the, uh, the 10th anniversary of the unveiling of the Google self-driving car project in like the first week of October, I guess, in 2010. 
um, with Sebastian Thrun's blog blog posts that kind of cracked open the doors on that um, and their ambitions, which you know are now coming coming to fruition in the in the Arizona desert. Um, but you know that myth has been getting built up for a very long time. If you go back um, through the late 20th century. Um, with various different concept cars and, um, you know, at one point even RCA was getting involved in uh, developing technologies with GM for um, self-driving highway infrastructure, which ironically was not wireless. It was, it was wire guided. Um, And, um, you know, the idea of essentially perfecting the automobile with technology, that one thing uh, about the automobile that was still, you know, premised on like human fallibility, um, both the thing that we love driving and the thing that we hate when there's too much of it, which is driving. Um, and, and, you know, I looked at, at, at that both from an urbanist point of view and a, a um, sort of like post-internet technologist point of view. And uh, it's, it's rubbish, uh, you know, from both of those perspectives. What we know is happening in mobility is, is just a huge fragmentation of modes and, and preferences uh, and behaviors. And, you know, what we're seeing on the web is that every, everything is programmable. Um, you know, you take a, a core set of digital technologies for sensing, making sense of, and then program, you know, manipulating the world. Um, why would you only put that into one kind of product, one form factor, when you can put it into everything from skateboards to wheelchairs to, you know, small buildings? Uh, and in fact, you know, that's what we've seen. Um, Brian Boyer, who was uh, a collaborator of mine who um, did the illustrations for the book, uh, he teaches at the University of Michigan. And, and last year with his students, they did a, a robot survey kind of like a census of automated vehicles. You know, these are, these are commercial products, um, specialized automated vehicles, and they, they found like 90 different products on the market, none of which were conventional passenger vehicles that you would, you know, go to a dealer lot and, and, and pluck down some money and, and drive away in. These are things like street sweepers and all kinds of um, cargo vehicles, um, patrol vehicles that are used for, for monitoring streets and warehouses and factory floors and things like that. Um, and that's really, you know, that's the story of the book, that the, the future of automated mobility is, is not about cars. It's about all these other little things that are going to roll and creep and crawl along our streets. Well, and, you know, the business reporter in me, of course, looks at all of those other things as potentially the better path to making money um, than, you know, the robo-taxi model. You called your book a mythbuster, but I actually kind of was thinking of it as a sort of a window into society's psychology and around, you know, the vehicle and how it's shaped cities and helps I mean, I I know this, but it helped me kind of wrap my head around why um, our culture here specifically homes in on one specific form factor, Mm -hmm. particularly, you know, some of the history uh, that you lay out early on the book. So it's almost like uh, an anthropological study, too. Um, And, you know, to to better understand why we think we the way we do. Um, What was did you kind of already have that sort of formulated or did you sort of discover 
or that on your path of, of writing the book? Was this a preset notion? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is sort of the way I approach these things. Um, in the academic literature, they call this social constructivist point of view. Um, you know, that, that we invent the technologies or society, we invent the technologies that we need. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great story about, um, you know, how a, a version of the optical fax machine was invented during the Napoleonic era in France for military communications. Um, and it, it never caught on because the pace of business wasn't fast enough to need it. Um, fax machines caught on, you know, in the 70s when the pace of business justified a technology like that. The same thing with mobile phones, you know. Um, mobile phones really, um, one way of looking at it is that they were developed when you had tens of millions of women entering the workforce. And all of a sudden, you needed the phones to be where the people who were commu- coordinating family and, and, and society were going to be. Um, and so that's when we started to invest in that technology and that infrastructure. It wasn't like someone just decided in the lab, you know, like, hey, I'm going to invent this technology now because it's technically possible. The demand had to be there. And that's what I think is happening with automated mobility uh, is that, you know, in all different kinds of ways, whether it's congestion or uh, energy consumption or the size and complexity of cities uh, and the, you know, the pace of businesses that's uh, happening there, um, the cost of labor. There are a lot of things uh, about moving people and goods that, that we have strong um, push factors pushing us to automate now. And um, that's why I think these specialized vehicles are so interesting. Um, and particularly like as we enter this kind of trough of disillusionment um, with, with self-driving cars, um, and the pandemic has revealed the huge logistical challenge of delivering all these things we're ordering online, that um, it, it, it is this, this business, you know, this economic need to move stuff cheaply and safely and reliably around the clock, um, very high volumes, very high turnaround, that's going to drive us to build this technology. Um, you know, we've invested like, I think somewhere around $120 billion um, trying to perfect in the last you know, couple of years, a general purpose passenger vehicle that can drive on pretty much any road uh, you know, on the network um, had uh, you know, limited success, um, but the market for it is still really limited. On the other hand, you know, a, a robot that can drive itself along a, a pre-mapped delivery route uh, you know, it's an easier engineering problem with a much stronger engineer, uh, economic case. Uh, and there just happens to be someone at the end of that, that drive who's willing to pay for that to happen. So I see, you know, the story behind these things often has very little to do with technology and has to do with how our society and our civilization, um, you know, as an urbanist, how the built environment is changing um, in ways that, that drive um, you know, investment in these technologies. It's easy to like go back and say, oh, well, the railroad changed North America. And it's, you know, no, actually, you know, the railroad was harnessed to develop North America. Uh, you know, it could have been something else if that had happened, that, you know, expansion had happened in a different point in history. And I think that's what's happening now is automated mobility is the thing that we're going to use to bootstrap this next phase of, of urbanization and digitalization. 
So earlier today, um, a story, I saw a story in Rodent Track saying that um, car sales were, uh, uh, there are no affordable cars for enthusiasts. The enthusiasts are dying out um, and uh, because of income inequality. That was basically the thesis of the article. Uh, car sales of affordable cars are going to go down because of income inequality. You have a whole section in your book where you, t- you, you talk about how driving isn't dying because of technology. It's falling out of fashion. Do um, you think that that trend is going to continue because of forces, economic forces? So you're saying that the, the article was basically saying that the, the, the econo box segment of the car industry is gone. It's just going to go away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm curious how much of that is about whether there's no demand for those vehicles or whether there's just no profit uh, in selling them. Um, you know, I know that's that's been implicated in like Ford's decision to shift, you know, to their trucks is that like they want to focus on the high margin stuff because it's it's better for them to ride, you know, the, the cycles um, if they're not bogged down and mass producing those low margin things and there you know there may be a place in the global supply chain for those makers of those those low margin vehicles it may just not be like in the developed world um david king at arizona state who's who's a close collaborator you know he he always likes to point out that as much as automated mobility may make things like taxi bots much cheaper and more convenient and you know, just like ride hail and shared mobility over the last few years, like a viable alternative to owning a car. If you live in a specific place and live a certain kind of lifestyle, um, automation is going to make cars a lot more useful, right? Like they'll be able to take themselves for gas or for a charge. They'll be able to go get themselves repaired. You'll be able to like swipe them off to do things for you. Um, you know, take people, to places and, and, uh, you know, pick up your friends or your dry cleaning. So, um, parking will be basically eliminated as like a human activity. Um, one of the major sources of frustration of owning a car yeah. and then all of the opportunity cost and frustration of, of, um, you know, dealing with, with urban traffic. Um, a couple of years ago, I used to use this video in presentations when Audi was, um, starting to evangelize some of their, uh, like, fully automated, I guess, like level three traffic um, driving systems that they were planning on rolling out. You know, it was this video of like a, a, a high-end SUV coming out of a suburban uh, home, driving into the city center and instantly getting stuck in traffic and then shooting out all of these Wi-Fi beams and switching into self-driving mode. And I just remember being so marveled at it because it was, like it contrasts that to the typical, um, you know, car ad where, you know, it's the only car on the road. There's no buildings anywhere. It's it's usually like Highway One, you know, and Big Sur, and it's like this is the total opposite. They're basically showing like how good this car is at getting stuck in traffic, um, and and you know, it made me realize like a lot of the assumptions that that urbanists have about people abandoning their cars um, because presumably automated taxis will be so cheap. You know, that's a really iffy presumption. Um, and, and so, yes, I think there's going to be cars. There's going to be a lot of cars. Some of them will be really amazing. Um, you know, Tesla has certainly shown us, like, if you, if you try to make an amazing electric car, you can. Uh, and it's a great way to promote 
the whole category. If you try to make an automated car, that's amazing. I'm, I'm sure many will demonstrate. What, um, what I started to realize, like, you know, thinking about it in more detail and looking at really just getting an appreciation for what a complex activity driving is and that we're really only automating one small piece of it. Um, and that people, you know, may also want um, to only automate certain parts of the driving function and, um, you know, getting into a scenario where uh, you may be able to retain control over certain parts of the driving experience, but um, have a computer take over the boring parts, the parts you don't want to do. Um, so, you know, maybe you just want to control the throttle or you're focused on fuel economy and you just want to sort of do the hypermiling stuff. Um, or maybe it's just safety and you want to, you want to be vigilant about, you know, safety, um, controlling, um, but you know, you want to ignore everything else. Um, those are the kinds of things that software, you know, a fully automated vehicle will let you do. And expecting that there's going to be a rich aftermarket um, and a, really just a rich space for design innovation in there. And we really have no idea, I think, what that space is going to look like. Um, you just compare it to like how designers have exploited, you know, that that really narrow space inside the smartphone app platform where you've got three or four sensors and a, and a five-inch screen, what they have accomplished with that. Um, imagine what they can do with the, the computing and the sensing array and the ability to act on the physical world that a self-driving car platform is going to provide. Uh, and I think, I think we're really in kind of uncharted territory. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So I, I, I hate to do this, but you said the T word and, you know, <laughs> I love Tesla my Tesla. Is, I love is, my Tesla. Come on, Ed. Is such a like it, they're such an outlier from from everyone else in the AV space um, across so many dimensions and like my my theory behind them or sort of my the way I think about it is that is that you know the a lot of the reasons why Tesla is so successful both in terms of its autonomy stuff and and elsewhere I mean successful in terms of perception and, and commercial right getting people to put money down essentially. Um, uh, well, I guess they're the only people trying really in autonomy at this point, but like, I feel like they, they do this really amazing job of like giving people that sense of being like this game changing futuristic thing while still being something that's incredibly safe and familiar. And that doesn't really ask people to, to, to change at all. Right. It's a big, powerful status endowing, you know, luxury car. Um, and, and, you know, and, and it's feeding the fantasy that, you know, you can, 
you know, the, 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 what this technology will do is really not change our lives too much. It will keep things sort of basically the same, but make it more convenient in that your car will then drive itself when you're too drunk or, or whatever else. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious, like, because, you know, and, and also like, you know, your, your book, it's very much like been described as like an urbanist perspective on AVs. And, and that's clearly a really important part of how you view this stuff. And Elon Musk is, is so such an anti uh, urbanist in certain ways, certainly very anti public transport uh, transit. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, like, like, how do you see um, Tesla? How does it fit into your, your vision of the ghost road? Yeah. I mean, I tried to resolve, there's a lot of complicated questions around um, like in urban planning, uh, you know, is automo- automated mobility going to reinforce or sort of give, you know, like a fresh breath of air to um, 20th century sprawl? Or is it something that can be harnessed to like continue push for less car centric, more walkable urbanism, more transit, more density, um, which is, you know, very important project in terms of sustainability, but also affordability and all kinds of other things, equity. Um, and so it's a, it's a very deep and woolly debate, but I tried to really boil it down to, um, you know, kind of like one side or the other. Um, and, you know, Tesla and Musk, I, I throw into uh, the camp of what I call autonomous um, these are people who, and it's a, it's a very kind of conservative, very North American um, point of view. But um, you know, it's it's one that sees this as a as a technology for for automating sprawl, um, for taking all the things that aren't working about California, basically, and and fixing it with some engineering. Um, uh, and uh, you know, they this is this is very much the vision that grew up. Um, throughout much of the second half of the 20th century of automated mobility and intelligent transportation systems. It began to become part of U.S. federal policy in the 90s. There were a bunch of demonstration projects, uh, a famous one um, called Demo 97 in San Diego, where a lot of the people who now work and lead, you know, the self-driving teams in various companies cut their teeth. Um, You know, and this was a, it's a, it's another great video where you see a bunch of kind of K cars, GM K cars cruising down the highway in San Diego. Um, you know, not a, not a building in sight. Um, one person per car, uh, and you know the cars are synchronized, uh, six feet apart or whatever. And you know, reading the newspaper, and and that's the idea is that you're gonna you're gonna fix that single passenger vehicle um, system. And uh, you know, in contrast to that. Uh, is what I call car-like communes, and this is um, this is kind of uh, the whole shared mobility uh, framework where um, automation is seen as a key to. Um, it's even seen as a lever to bring in some very very uh, harsh policy measures that would really really cut down on the number of cars in urban areas, push people towards shared vehicles, um, impose a lot of distance-based pricing for mobility. Um, and really cut down on the number of miles. Um, and some of those measures are actually like pretty draconian. Like you have to get to like 80% um, of rides being shared before you really start to see the benefits. So that's why the communes. Uh, so, you know, it's a, a bit of a way of oversimplifying some of the political economy behind it. 
um, and some of the potential like land use and transportation implications. But it, I, I thought it was it did sort of sum up, um, you know, where some of these things might fall. Um, and um, you know, I think Tesla and and Alphabet and Waymo, Larry Page for sure. I mean, some of his ideas about transportation and cities are, are downright insane. Um, you know, if he had his way, we would rebuild California uh, with a flying car in every garage. And um, I just think that's it's irresponsible on so many different levels um, and, and probably not feasible. Can you do you have a, 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 a postmortem on the Sidewalk Labs project in Toronto? Um, and and also, do you have it? What's your take on the the cul-de-sac project in Tempe, Arizona? Yeah, I think um, sidewalk uh, kind of bit, bit off more than it could chew, um, and then uh, you know chose a project site where they didn't really understand, um, I, you know, they didn't really understand uh, how um, how intense the uh, the the lack of goodwill towards a big American tech company would be. Um, and they didn't do the work to, um, the, to, to lay sort of a, a, uh, a welcome mat um, for themselves to have an honest and open conversation about data governance. Um, there were a lot of other flaws with that project, but that was kind of the Achilles heel that they could, they could never recover from. Um, you know, cul-de-sac, I think, is uh, borrowing the best of, um, and it's sort of the most market-ready of Sidewalk's ideas. Um, I think part of the problem with Sidewalk was that they they really did want to kind of start from scratch and blue sky the city. Um, and some of it was just too ambitious. Um, it needed 20 years. It needed a district of 100,000 people to, to prototype and to, and to test. And cul-de-sac is sort of borrowing... The, the ideas from that that are ready for here and now and putting it together in a smaller package um, and uh, not requiring as much participation and permission from government. It's a little bit more self-contained. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that if something like cul-de-sac succeeds uh, and we're able to scale those, um, you know, build a couple hundred of them over the next decade or two, I think that could potentially, you know, really put the country um, the next wave of housing development on a much better path where, you know, even if we're building those kinds of developments, you know, out in the exurbs, they're not going to be contributing to the sprawl so much as creating new centers within it. Right. Which I think could almost be kind of like healing process. <laughs> uh, and then when you think about layering, you know, they become platforms for layering automated mobility in. So they could become the hubs of, Taxi bot networks that um, you know uh, serve the surrounding area, and um, or delivery services, and, and you can imagine businesses and people wanting to locate close to those kinds of of uh, centers because you would have better services and better services through automated mobility the closer you get to them. Um, and I, but I think you know I didn't really. Um, I could probably have spent another year or two researching the whole um, issue of automated freight and the impact that, it, um, you know, that technology could have on the economy and the landscape. Uh, and I am continuing to do work on that. And I think, you know, when, when the pandemic came out, 
I had a real moment where I was like, oh my God, like the book is obsolete. Uh, and as we saw what happened, you know, with, with uh, the stay at home and the surge in deliveries, I realized, you know, we, we kind of zipped three or four or five years into that future. Um, and most of what I had speculated about seemed to be holding up. Um, you know, we haven't seen the wave of, of automated delivery technologies yet, but I think there's a lot that's in the works. Um, and you're certainly seeing it in the core of the logistics system. Uh, and, and that stuff it, 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 at some point is going to start to spill out of the fulfillment centers out onto the streets, as, as I kind of speculated about. Um, and, and when it does, um, the, the tyranny of distance is going to reassert itself on the landscape, I think, in a very, very strong way. Um, because you, you know, you're going to want to be close to those distribution centers because of the, the benefits it will provide for, for commerce and for lifestyle, um, you know, to be able to, to tap into that flow of goods in, in real time, the same way we tap into communications in real time now. Yeah, I was, um, to jump in, I was curious as I was reading the book and as you, delved into sort of the bigger opportunities around um, freight, mm -hmm. wondering when you put, when, when you finished your book and the timing of that, because um, I had the opposite thought, of course, as someone not writing the book, but reading it was like, wow, that's great timing because actually COVID has absolutely accelerated a number of, of aspects of the way we work, right? Um, the at-home component, companies becoming more comfortable with employees and having to really change working from home. And then this idea about freight. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering though, um, as you talk about these, this future of concentrated areas of, of, did you mean by population concentrations around, you know, sort of distribution centers or, or more on just like the corporate logistics side? Uh, and I'm wondering if you could kind of elaborate a little bit on that and then what you, how you see that changing cities today, because I, I live in Arizona, you know, I I'm familiar with cul-de-sac. I think it's an interesting project. Phoenix is one of the most sprawling cities. It's I think 625 square miles. So how would a city like Phoenix potentially change as a result of more uh, automated freight? Would it allow for, dozens of cul-de-sac like communities or would it somehow unexpectedly cause more sprawl? I mean, it, it, you know, it's, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, we'll, we'll have to look in 20 years and see, but I think, I think the tendency, um, one of the things that has shaped places like Phoenix is that, um, you know, the cost of, shipping or moving stuff doesn't really depend all that much on distance. Um, you know, once you get into the road network, you can basically use it for free um, and uh, things spread out. So it's sort of, the sprawl is sort of subsidized. Um, and the argument that I make, particularly towards, towards the, the end of the book, that, um, you know, shifting more towards um, large automated fleets that are, um, you know, uh, operated by by bigger and bigger companies that are trying to optimize the use of those fleets is um, going to, um, as it has with with Uber and with all of these other um, 
kinds of networks that are managed this way lead to um, a lot of uh, introduction of distance-based pricing. Um, and uh, this is something that transportation policymakers are very excited about. It's, it's what we've been trying to do for a long time, get people to pay for the fair share of travel that they do, uh, the wear and tear they put on roads, the pollution they emit. Um, so, and, and the impact of distance-based pricing uh, over time will, is to make things locate closer to other things. Um, and that's true uh, at every scale. Um, so that's, that's sort of like the baseline is that um, having more, having markets play a bigger role in running the mobility system and providing economic incentives through prices, which is what's happening. Automation will make that like more immediate and, and more widespread and more powerful. Um, that that is necessarily going to reduce some of the tendency to sprawl. So that's that's sort of like the air, you know, that's <laughs> like the entropy in the universe that's that's happening over the next ten to twenty years. Um, on top of that, I think you get the the whole specialization stuff that I was talking about. That living in a place, uh, you know, where they may be a little more dense, where um, you know, you can have shared services that are provided by a range of different vehicle types, um, some of which are robot-like and doing things like cleaning and patrolling and um, delivering, um, is going to be very desirable. And I think that's where these communities like like cul-de-sac are sort of sort of heading towards um, that they're they're ro- almost robo-serviced enclaves. Um, you know, within existing cities, um, and and what the, what the these these machines and the software that controls them will be used to do is, is to provide a very high quality of life, a lot of mobility at a very low cost, and potentially a very low carbon impact. Um, so it, it's not that um, people will even make a value choice or cost choice. It's, it'll just be better living than having to go out in your own car and get everything yourself. You will press a button and it will come to you, or more likely, it'll come to you before you even realize that you want it, and you'll have to push it away. Um, and that's that was like I think as a futurist, one of the kind of most exciting and most frightening things that I wrote myself into in the book was this idea of like basically like physical spam. Um, you know, if we drive the cost of delivering goods, consumer goods, down to you know, the cost of sending a text message, you can really easily imagine a kind of direct marketing of products like that. Um, you know, some of the things with like Amazon wardrobe are starting to approach that already. Um, so you can imagine, you know, consumer companies just speculatively sending you stuff. Um, and, you know, it's up to you to swipe it, swipe it back away on the, the little robo courier. And that, you know, there's not like, like that that's actually a viable way of marketing things and distributing things. Um, well, when you think about another 10 years, let's say, of data collection from Amazon alone, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. Amazon, you can imagine not necessarily a future I'm super excited about in terms of the physical spam um, component, but you can see how it could absolutely happen. Absolutely. And so, and so one of the things that I, I wrote a lot about was, this is very, very not even plausible, but but it's a kind of a probable future. 
Um, and it's also probable that, yeah, uh, in North America, Amazon, in China, it's Alibaba or Baidu, that this is, this is tending towards um, almost like a single retailer. Um, and, and that that's really, really, really scary. Um, the shakeout after, um, after uh, the lockdown um, here in the U.S. between Amazon and Walmart, um, you just saw basically they were the only ones that were really able to respond to the surge, and they used that um, to to reinforce brand loyalty, um, to uh, kind of take advantage of the fact that that local retailers were not able to uh, and expand their market share. And to pick off, you know, whatever remaining competition that they had, you know, at scale. Um, and so, you know, when we say like we worked three or four or five years into the future, it wasn't just into a future where like things are more convenient. It was a future where the retail landscape is a lot more consolidated in the hands of a very small number of companies. So, you know, you asked like what City of the Future might look like. City of the Future, I think there's a lot less shopping. Um at least for like anything that can go in a box or a small like refrigerated compartment. Um, whether that gets replaced uh, on on your local main street by other kinds of, of uses, um, more like personal services or, um, you know, uh, remote work kinds of support things like co-working and other kinds of things, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, but it's definitely something that um, people in economic development and and uh, you know are really deeply deeply concerned about right now. Um, like, what is going to replace the small businesses that have been gutted by COVID? Because it's, it isn't going to be retailers. Um, that is that has virtualized, um, and whatever happens with automated shipping is just going to um, accelerate and consolidate and and kind of lock that in. You don't think that there might be a, sorry, Ed, um, I think of sort of the rise. I always think back of like the rise and fall of like the Sears catalog back, back in the catalog shipping days and how it dominated. And, and I wonder if there will ever be a pushback on the retailer sort of hands-on small local business farmer's market model decades in the future where there will be this, um, desire to recapture that, you know, way of doing business of, you know, our part partially of how we do business today. Do you see a situation like that at all? Yeah, I think those, those are real. Um, and, and they're exciting, uh, and they're a huge opportunity. And I started in the book a little bit to try to, to paint like a, an alternate vision, um, where, you know, a, a, fully automated, very low cost, last mile automated distribution system was not something that was used to, you know, ship goods from from the world's factory uh, to our front door, but maybe was more of a, of a mesh or a peer-to-peer kind of distribution system that would support local manufacturers, um, that would support um, circular economy kinds of flows of material and energy. Um, urban farming uh, is certainly something that you could, uh, so, you know, if we have a robot for everything else, why not a composter bot that cruises around the neighborhood picking up food scraps, you know, after, 
the, the one meal brings your delivery from, from the local uh, organic producer. And then, you know, an hour later, something comes up for the scraps. Um, you know, these are, these are all, they're speculative, but I think um, they point towards uh, a different possible future, but it's one that is, I think, going to push pretty hard against where the water wants to flow um, in terms of, of like free markets. Uh, and it's going to require communities. It's going to require consumers to to make more thoughtful choices, and maybe for some some barriers or some incentives to be put in place. Um, and I think where where those come into play is is the public right of way, so streets and sidewalks. Mm-hmm. That's where yeah, I was just thinking zoning. Approach. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is actually, I wrote about this in the book. I was just sort of, sort of, uh, pulling it out of the air, but I, I found out later that the mayor of Paris and Hidalgo had actually proposed this, that, um, there'd be some Amazon, uh, she was pushing back against Amazon. So basically we should charge them a, a curb kiss fee that every time Amazon wants to, to pull up for delivery, they have to pay. My idea was to make it like a value added tax, essentially think of the curb as the customs house of the 21st century. And those goods are being imported from Amazon's global supply chain into our local economy. And that they should have to pay a pretty steep tariff in order to come in and compete with what we would want to grow as a more protected kind of uh, set of local service providers and producers. And I think there's an argument to be made for that, Um, you know, that you need to, um, have a diversity of economic activities in a local economy um, for a whole bunch of reasons that um, need to be um, brought like uh, to equal terms to just having sort of a ruthlessly efficient um, and and incredibly convenient supply chain that a company like Amazon provides. Yeah, I, I want to, um, I you know, and you've sort of already uh, talked about a little bit, but the, this issue of financialization if you could just sort of explain what that, that concept of financialization that you talk about in the book is. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the way I explain it sort of, you know, over cocktails to people is, um, you know, you've heard a lot about self-driving cars. Uh, you're kind of scared of big tech. Um, aren't you scared of a bunch of Silicon Valley people um, telling you that this car is safe or there was a British comedian. I remember who had cracked a joke a couple of years ago saying like anyone who thinks uh, you know, self-driving cars are going to be safe has never like tried to install a printer, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, and, you know, as I sort of worked my way through, through the book research, um, you know, I realized that we don't have to, like the, the people in Silicon Valley are not the people to be scared of. It's the people on wall street. Um, and when they get hold of this technology, what they're going to do with it to, um, to use it, to consolidate control over markets in the way that, say, they did, um, you know, when energy markets were deregulated or housing markets were deregulated or even, you know, food. Um, a good friend of mine, Fred Kaufman, wrote a, a really scathing book about uh, Goldman Sachs' manipulation of grain markets um, during the global financial crisis that caused a lot of pain. Um, and, um, you know, so what happens when we get an Enron of mobility services, you know, that's willing to... Uh, lie and cheat and steal and withhold, you know, this vital public resource or this public uh, utility from a city or state in order to jack the price up as they did with energy in California. Or you get 
weird leveraged financial instruments like we did in the housing market? Um, do we start to see, you know, taxi bot fleets, uh, the revenue streams, the cash flows turned into derivatives that then get repackaged into other kinds of instruments that are themselves algorithmically traded and evaluated. So, I mean, it sounds speculative, but this stuff happens with with remarkable speed. Um, and it's the plumbing of the urban mobility system in an automated way into the financial markets that's the really kind of step change uh, scary part of it. Um, is there... Sorry to jump in, but no, is there a uh, a company today, not to slap them with the Enron, you know, label, but that is structured in a way that would set themselves up to be able to have, be able to exert some manipulation over the mobility market? Is is there is there are there companies we should be paying to attention to now, even if they're not today using their powers for nefarious purposes, but just the fact that they're like maybe inroads within within the industry itself? Yeah, I mean, I think I think at some point Amazon may start to appear to be like that in in the last mile uh, for delivery. Um, they don't have it yet, but you know, them building out their own last mile delivery network is a really alarming development. Um, because at some point, you know, they may start to identify communities where they might cut like a, a deal with a government and say, look, you know, here's a bunch of cash. We want like some privileges that FedEx and UPS don't have um, and really become like the sole last mile carrier. They may just buy out the postal service. Um, that's certainly something that's been been talked about. Um I think the ride hail companies, you know, um, I think Tim O'Reilly has called it a capital fuel death match between Uber and, and Lyft. You know, at some point, one of them is going to win. Um, and if we look at what has happened in places like Singapore and Vietnam and the Philippines, where SoftBank has, uh, you know, acquired a controlling interest in, in the main ride hail players and then pulled out the one, uh, pulled out one of them. So in, in Singapore, they pulled Uber out after completing the, the merger, Uber and Grab. You know, Grab has an 80% market share. They raised uh, fares. Um, and they haven't really um, quite pressed their advantage to the theoretical limit, but they've really gotten themselves to a point where they now control the supply and the demand for ride hail because they can, they can manufacture demand by reprogramming the price, uh, however they choose to do so creating incentives. They have an ample pool of capital to subsidize it for any time and purpose they see fit. Uh, and then they control the supply because they can, you know, incentivize the drivers and direct them. Um, so Sing I bring this up because Singapore is also the place where we have the oldest congestion pricing scheme in the world. It's been a model for other cities um, and it's seen as a really progressive way to um, try to deal with urban uh Traffic problems. When you have a ride hill company that um, you know not only controls the supply and the demand of ride hail trips, uh, but is the source of most of the traffic in a downtown, and really the marginal number of vehicles that that pushes it from free flow into into you know gridlock. Um, 
they're also the main payer of the congestion fees to the city. So you get into this relationship where you have one company that essentially has control over oversupply and demand for, for ride hail that is the main payer to a local government that depends on this congestion fee to fund its transit system. And that is a really, really dangerous place for that city to be in. Um, I had spent a lot of time when I first started writing the book, looking at the, the history of uh, what happened when uh, streetcars were electrified in the 1890s. And it was a very similar, I mean, there's a lot of differences, but there were a lot of similarities where you saw the the capital structure of urban transportation change from essentially small operators with horse-drawn streetcars to these big network companies backed by banks that were building tracks and power networks and were natural monopolies and got into very close, very corrupt relationships with city governments. Um, and, and this was one of the, they called them traction monopolies, and they were hated. They often ended up buying the electric power companies as well. So you had one corrupt entity that controlled all, almost all the surface transportation, all of the electric power, and all of the lighting in a city. I mean, really, they controlled modern life in, in the same way that, you know, an Amazon or, or a Google plus Waymo might control sort of the full stack of, of our digital lives uh, and our automated lives, you know, in a decade or so. Um, and I think, you know, the, this, this was the genesis of uh, a lot of the antitrust momentum um, back at the turn of the, the 20th century. And I think the parallels are, are really, really striking. So this is already an alarming, if somewhat, you know, five to 10 year off in the future um, uh, scenario. The pandemic has, has just really, really um, put the press on cities even, even more. Um, cities everywhere are struggling to, to stay afloat um, transit systems throughout the United States now are um, staring down the barrel of big budget shortfalls and service cuts. They're all desperate for revenue. Um, and we're sort of seeing the wolves start to circle. So you asked about sidewalk labs. I mean, one of the things that emerged out of the ashes of the Toronto project was a, a company called Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, which is now essentially looking for opportunities to, to privatize uh, city infrastructure around the country. Um, and, and what they're offering is, is cash payments in order to come in and, and take over uh, infrastructure networks. So their, their first play is actually in Michigan. They're going to move in and try to automate a portion of, I forget which, which highway it is, from, from Ann Arbor to Detroit, um, develop a revenue model, take a portion of that right-of-way over and manage it in a, in a different way. Um, and uh, it's, a clever, it's a clever project with a lot of potential benefits, but it's also a, a, a sign that this is, this is now starting to come into play, um, that we're seeing you know, private companies come in and, and um, essentially try to, try to buy out um, governments from, from their role of, of running these, these, uh, these essential infrastructures. And um, it's, it's pretty scary. Um, what happened you know, with the traction monopolies, uh, fortunately, was that another technology came along and kind of undermined them. So subways were the thing that, that ended up killing killing the streetcar barons. 
uh, and automobiles as well. Uh, and there was a war. Um, but, you know, some cities, they just sort of chugged along. Philadelphia, one of the reasons Philadelphia fell behind was because they the streetcar barons kind of blocked subway construction. So Philadelphia has a small subway system because of that. Uh, in Seattle, the city you know, was a very um, kind of pro-progressive, pro, uh, uh, like pro-labor city. The city basically took over all these systems. They took over the power company. They took over the streetcar network. And they still operate, uh, both of them, to this day. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of responses from cities if we get these kind of uh, automated uh, traction monopolies emerging over the next decade. Um, yeah, and Arizona will be be ground zero because that's where Waymo is going to go to scale first. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of interesting experiments in the Phoenix area. I mean, you see Walmart um, has done a number of delivery pilots in and around Scottsdale. You've got Waymo uh, and, then, and then some others. But then, of course, there's cul-de-sac mm-hmm. and just the sheer urban sprawl um, component as well. It, it'll be really interesting to see what happens um, to portions of the city. Um, Tempe and Scottsdale being two areas that I'm particularly interested in. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the fastest growing parts of the country. Um, you know, it's uh, it's easy to experiment there. Um, you have a lot of governments that are willing to allow that. Um, and uh, I mean, what, what, what strikes me, though, particularly around automation, is that even after, I don't know, 15 years since the, the DARPA Urban Challenge, we really haven't changed like climate or landscape. Um, it's still the desert Southwest, a lot of sunshine, kind of um, broad streets, broad, well-painted streets. Um, and I'm still waiting for, for this technology to kind of make its way out into, into the wider world. Um, you know, here in New Jersey, like when are these things going to be able to, to navigate a jug handle? With uh, you know, or or uh, a a circle, traffic circle, um, without throwing control back or pulling over, um, yeah, it's uh, it's still, I'm still waiting for for you know these things to kind of crawl outside their comfort zone in a big way, um, and it's been surprising to see sort of the the plateau, um, you know, and uh, and the continued struggles to to overcome you know, that, that kind of birthing process. But when you, when you say struggle, you're talking about like on that like technical side. Yeah, yeah, with the, yeah. like, okay. What, what do you, what are you seeing there? I mean, just in a, in a broad sense, I don't follow sort of like the day to day ups and downs, but you know, it's, it's been 15 years since the DARPA grand challenge, which, um, you know, was, was done on a air force base in Southern California that gets, I don't know, you know, like Arizona, 350 some days of sunshine a year. Um, and, and sort of ideal conditions for, for LIDAR and for all the vision-based uh, systems that um, are used, you know, by today's self-driving technology. So um, that's a long time. That's a whole generation. It's a whole human generation. It's multiple technological generations. And, um, you know, the first full-scale trial is, you know, basically the same latitude a few hundred miles to the east. So, um, you know, what it says to me is, is we're still in, a, in, the, in the first phase of, like, geographical diffusion of technology. 
anywhere else you look that self-driving vehicles are being rolled out into the real world, it's an extremely controlled environment or there's a ton of assistive technology. So for instance, you go to Canada, nobody ever talks about autonomous vehicles. It's connected in autonomous vehicles because the country's covered in snow half the year. Um, and they know that smart vehicles need smart roads. And it's part of the national policy to have those things go out hand in hand. Um, you know, in many ways, the, the myth of, of automation that came out of Silicon Valley was the opposite. Um, and, and this is, this is a policy um, dilemma that goes back to the 60s. You can find cost-benefit estimates of the infrastructure for automating the interstate highway system. It would have like almost doubled the cost to create that, that guidance infrastructure. And when you know, Google came out in 2010, and uh, there were a lot of sort of hot and heavy speculation after that, a big, big part of it was we don't need government to do anything. This technology is going to retrofit the existing transportation system completely in these self-contained packages. This is like, this function happens entirely in software. And it, the vehicles didn't even have to change. It was really just a, it was installing a new guidance system for, you know, the conventional package of a, of a passenger car. Um, no infrastructure changes, nothing. And that has proven to just be the biggest myth of all. Um, you know, autonomous vehicles depend on all kinds of external things for guidance. And many of those require substantial public investments, whether it's GPS or just the paintings on, you know, the the, the lane markings have to be kept at a higher standard of uh, of maintenance in order for for computer vision to work properly. So, um, you know, it's it's one of the many myths, but I think one of the ones that has the biggest implications for for policy. Yeah, you know, it was funny actually. We were just um... I was, uh, someone had sent me a, a tweet uh, that was um, the BBC, a guy in, in 1981, a fascinating video because it, it was a guy, you know, from the BBC riding in a, in a driverless vehicle. Um, and of course it was at the time, you know, depended on, uh, it was essentially a line following robot, right? You have the, um, you know, the wires at the ground and it, and it follows us. What was fascinating, one of the things that was fascinating was that it was, uh, it, it was a really compelling use case in that, uh, which is which is funny because you don't see a lot of this in in AVs yet. Of like, oh yeah, this is something that we actually need this vehicle to be driverless in order to do. And it was actually for the development of the vehicle. They they drive around um, a track of uh, it's called pave, right? Which is um, uh, this really rough like cobblestoning mm -hmm. uh, and service. And they they do a certain amount of miles on that, and it's essentially like a highly accelerated lifetime uh, uh, durability testing, essentially, right? And um, and like you couldn't, like humans would get injured if you had to have a, a test driver doing it, right? Like it was just so uncomfortable, uh, even with a good, you know, with a Peugeot, which is like pretty comfortable car. So anyway, so that, that was fascinating. But but um, it, it was also just, it got me thinking about this this whole thing of like the vision for AVs for the first, well, for at least the second half of the 20, 20th century, or at least most of it. Um, from the uh, GM 1956 Motorama um, video, which is like one of the big sort of cultural moments in the history of, of AVs, um, it's always been that concept of we'll have smart infrastructure and, uh, and the cars will, will, 
will just sort of follow these electronic rails, right? And in very, there are various ways to do this and everything. What was fascinating to me was that it turned out, and I'd missed this detail, even though I've been quite a bit of time uh, dunking on the, the Teslas and tunnels thing on Twitter, um, that they that was actually, they were actually using the same concept for that, um, which is fascinating because I just assumed Tesla is an AV developer. A tunnel is literally the easiest domain that you could possibly <laughs> imagine. And yet they're going back to this, like, you know, again, this concept that, Anyway, what what hit me was a. It's fascinating that 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 we uh, thought that this would be the way to get this driverless future and all the benefits. We could already imagine the benefits back in the fifties, right? Uh, that we talk about today. Um, and yet, a we we have not been able to decide on what spectrum, what part of the spectrum to even use for connected vehicle technology. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the technology has evolved and and all that, but but. But there's a there's been a political problem, right? And essentially, the telecoms and the and 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 auto companies have have been in the locked in this battle. And so, uh, we've been that whole concept has been surpassed by technology during this gridlock. But the other piece of it too, which is really fascinating to think about, is that in the 1950s, obviously, you didn't have AI and, and sensor technology, lidar and stuff where it is today. But also, I feel like you also had a, a more of a political culture that was more comfortable and and used to making big infrastructure investments as a legacy. So so I'm just kind of curious, like how you how how right because clearly like AVs are coming in part because of the of of, of the technology the technology is enabling them, and as you point out too, there are opportunities to make money. But also, isn't part of this a little bit like driven being driven by our political dysfunction? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean. If we're going to invest in any kind of infrastructure for automated vehicles, the money is going to come from markets. It's going to be some some way of leveraging private capital because they want to invest and there is no appetite for, for public investment. Um, how that's going to be mobilized into anything beyond just a handful of like very highly congested or highly profitable corridors where you can get like a lot of kind of demand-based tolling going on and a lot of revenues and predictable revenues. I don't know. Um, I think that's going to be challenging. I think the, the probably the most immediate case for a big public investment in smart roads is around modernizing the entire trucking fleet and the national freight distribution infrastructure. Um, you know, there's a lot of angst in the trucking industry um, around the um, both the safety and the employment implications of automation in addition to the, the economic impacts of it. I think there, you know, what we've seen from the pandemic is that there are like national security implications to it as well. And it's, it's an area where there's just like a, a, a lack of strategy. Um, I think if the country could could get its act together to develop a national trucking automation strategy that would figure out both how to pay for doing, you know, putting putting the infrastructure in place to do it quickly, safely, and universally, um, so that you know all fifty states see the benefits of it, while also using it as an opportunity to figure out how to move the millions of people that could get thrown out of work to to another path. Um, that's the kind of thing that you can see the stars start to line up and it would pay off for the country for half a century. 
yeah. kind of kind of like how how I mean the the biggest uh, organization that pushed for the the gas tax initially was AAA um, and and the auto industry they were all for it because they needed but but it's harder to see with AVs like what is the right like especially because they're developing it in a way that to be like we don't need any kind of infrastructure to to make this happen like then it, it becomes a lot harder to say okay like help us invest in this so that you can grow your own. Yeah, I mean, they'll probably start to um, see some elements of of a um, connected vehicle infrastructure get piggybacked on top of um, whatever electric vehicle infrastructure, charging infrastructure plans Mm -hmm. emerge out of the you know the Biden administration. Um, At a minimum, doing some smart things to kind of lay the groundwork for it to come later. Uh, So not do anything you know now that would preclude adding that later or ex- extending that later uh, or future sort of future proofing the EV uh, infrastructure to make it also support automation down the road. Um, there'll probably be a lot of, um, you know, um, kind of signaling around coordinating the auto industry and the telecoms industry. But uh, I think, I think it needs a bigger sort of political wager. Uh, and I think it's around, um, manufacturing in the heartland and it's around um, n- sort of national self-sufficiency and resilience. And, um, you know, the, the, the trucking fleet in the interstate highway system is one of the really unique aspects of the U.S. economy that has given it tremendous flexibility at the cost of really, really high carbon emissions um, and so we need to be able to preserve that flexibility while bringing it into compliance with, you know, what people who want to move it all to rails would like to see, which I think, um, you know, is one way of doing it, but it, it's not the only answer. Yeah. And I know we, we've used, uh, you, you, we've been recording for over an hour now, so we won't, I want to, I want to let you go, but, um, Alex, do you want to, you have any, any? Final questions. You're back with us now. Um, do you foresee a day where a region or a city or a region bans human driving inside a specific fence? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that was one of that was one of Sidewalk's um, big ideas was to create a little bubble of the future in Toronto, where they could roll out automated vehicles in a place where they wouldn't have to compete with human-driven vehicles. Um, they would have to compete with pedestrians and bicycles, but that was something that was a little bit manageable. Um, I, I think that's, it's a sound idea. Um, it's still pretty rare. Um, what we're actually seeing in, in the real world, and, and we were just talking about the sort of um, kind of slowing of the pace of, of perfection of automated driving, is that a lot of the kind of, um, you know, what were once very like bombastic voices in the engineering community are now saying, well, maybe we need to simplify the built environment a little bit. Um, you know, maybe we need to remove um, some of the human drivers, remove some of the pedestrians, you know, get government to step in and create protected spaces for AVs um, so that we can, we can, you know, have a more controlled space to design into. Um, and that's not a good development. It, kind of goes against all of the like principles of, of complete streets that, that mobility advocates have been pushing 
for for a long time. And in fact, I think what we we're seeing uh, from prominent voices in urban planning are sort of the opposite kinds of pushes, which is calls to prevent automated vehicles from coming into cities. Um, Jeanette Seda Khan, who was a former transit uh, transportation uh, chair in, in New York City, has called for that. The mayor of Paris has called for that. Um, we, we've we've seen it hasn't sort of caught fire yet, um, but it could. Um, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted early on to ban um, little uh, sidewalk delivery robots from sidewalks for a period until they could get a handle on that. Um, it's an easy kind of NIMBY position to take against this technology. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one that, that, that could potentially, I think, throw up some, some obstacles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, it's actually fascinating. I had not heard that, that, um, I, I'm familiar with Jeanette City Khan. I had, I did not know that she called for to ban ABs in, in cities, sort of, a, a of all it may have been in a private things? conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> gotcha. We could obviously have a uh, entire conversation, another hour long conversation about the book. Um, so maybe we should periodically have you come on to talk about developments as they unfold. That'd be fun. Absolutely. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you for, for the opportunity and thanks for the commitment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, no, this has been great. I, is there anything that you want to plug, like your tw Twitter account or what? Like, what would you like to plug before we uh, before we call it? Uh, so the website for the book uh, is ghostroadbook.com and I'm on Twitter at Anthony Mobile. And uh, that's about it. Yeah, definitely worth a follow. Highly recommend that. Um, I've been enjoying it. Yeah, especially if you want to talk about things that are not transportation. Uh, Townsend is lit. Yeah. Lit. <laughs> 80s hardcore and feral cats and random New Jersey trivia. <laughs> awesome. Well, we uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to come in uh, and chat with us today. I know we've all – it's it's rare for the three of us to all read the same book even, let alone all three of us to read a book and like it. I'm, I'm – if I'm remembering correctly, the last book that we all three read, we were not all such big fans of. Uh, what, what, was it my name, book or was it your book? Oh, well, book, I guess Ed? it would be my book, which means I know you guys did a whole episode just hating on it. So, because everyone loves my book. I mean, like nobody ever disputes that. <sighs> Anyhow, congratulations. Fantastic book. Thank, uh, you. thank you again for uh, for taking the time and uh, and and especially give, you know being so generous. We've, we've taken so much of it. So we'll let you go and uh, we'll see you back here on another episode of the Atonicast. Yes, and we'll deconstruct Fugazi using the raw stem files. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>